Welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation at americascannabisconversation.com. And here's your host, Dan Perkins. Welcome back to America's Cannabis Conversation. And we have an extraordinary guest today, Mr. Jason Wilson. He is an attorney, but not by trade anymore. He's very much involved in the cannabis space and working with the ETF creator. We're going to talk to him about what's going on in the business and what he thinks is going to happen in the industry from a regulatory standpoint and a business standpoint going forward. So, Jason, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. You're welcome. Thank you. So, um, in full disclosure, I'm a registered investment advisor. I've been managing money for close to 50 years. I was an early adopter of ETFs. Uh, but I was not an early adopter of, of cannabis ETFs because I thought they were they we didn't have enough size, they weren't liquid enough, and extremely price volatility. Uh, you're working with MJ, which really has created a portfolio uh, of related in longs and shorts and leverage and all kinds of things, along with other non-cannabis ETFs. But I'm interested in the in the ETF. So what changed that allowed you to get to that fund to a billion dollars? It was quite the challenge to to get MJ launched in the first place. And, and as you pointed out, when we started seeing the cannabis industry expand, for initially in Canada, really, uh, back mm-hmm. in 2014, 2015, once we, you know, it's probably around 2016, 2017 is when we really started to see enough cannabis companies out there with enough liquidity and significant enough market cap that we could actually create an investment vehicle, you know, to create a portfolio that, that, that had enough exposure to the cannabis industry. So we started down that path in early 2017. And the big hurdle was, you know, you, you, you kind of nailed it on the head where, where, where he said it, it's a volatile industry, uh, but it's also an illegal industry in the U S so launching a federally regulated investment fund that trades on the New York Stock Exchange was it took a lot of work to to get the regulators comfortable with whether or not there'd be you know any any issues with any money any money laundering legislation things of that nature so it's, it's mm-hmm. it, it was it was about a year or so of work of working with the regulators of working with our administrators the custodian the trustees uh, but we eventually were able to build a portfolio that a not only was was liquid enough um, and large enough to to support significant capital investment, but also to do it in, in a way by investing in companies that were operating in jurisdictions that that uh, where cannabis was federally legal. So it's, that's how, that's where MJ started. That's how we came out, and uh, you know just seeing the growth in the industry from from you know not just in the U.S. but globally expansion of several countries around the, around the planet, uh, continuing to, to move towards legalization, both medical and recreational. It just brought a lot of eyeballs on the fund, and, uh, you know, we, we became kind of the bellwether for the industry. That's true. You, you are the bellwether for the industry. And, and the, the, you mentioned the fact that the, it's, the product is now is available in many more places around the world legally than when you started, you guys started the fund. Um, but uh, while you've had great success, um, I can point to index ETFs that have trillions of dollars. 
So while a billion is a great accomplishment, what do you what do you see for the future for these funds? Yeah, and it's 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 you're right. Is that you know, cannabis industry is still really it's a, it's a nascent industry. It's an emerging industry, and as as much as having a billion dollar fund is is great as a as a beginning metric, you know, a fund of the size of MJ is of that size with significant liquidity is good for investors. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's just the, it's just the beginning of it, and and we see. The opportunity for for cannabis investments for the cannabis industry to just continue to grow exponentially. I, I think that you know a lot of the hesitance right now with with certain investors is not having the clarity and the transparency of where the industry go, is going to go ultimately. Is it you know there there's state by state by state we see continue you know reform and and legalization initiatives and we see a country by country but i i think until we see meaningful reform at the federal level in the US which will which would likely be the big trigger for global reform it's not until we see that happen that that we'll really see the cannabis industry move to you know from this kind of boutique opportunity to more of a mainstream industry. It'll change the, com- the complexion of the in- industry entirely when that happens. And I, and I think once we know what those rules and regulations will look like, it'll give your larger institutional investors that transparency, that clarity that they need to understand what the, how the industry could unroll, you know, moving forward. Right now it's very fragmented. So it's, 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 it's kind of hard for them to, to understand what the ultimate potential could be. Right, I I agree with you totally. I I look at um, when I spoke to the president uh, on founder on the show. Um, I said I think one of the one of the many challenges the industry faces, and you specifically with an exchange traded fund, while they're extremely popular as an alternative alternative to picking individual stocks. Uh, it's it's still a business that a lot of people, investors, have not taken advantage of. And so I think you've got a cannabis learning curve, but you also have a learning curve to a lot of people who do not understand how an ETF structure works. And um, maybe you could just take a moment and help our listeners understand from a rudimentary standpoint, not necessarily your fund, but how an ETF is structured and why it works and why it's so good for the customer. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, exchange traded funds are becoming a very, very popular investment, particularly amongst, amongst, um, you know, investors that, that, you know, manage their own money. Um, but also with, with registered investment advisors and others. And, and the, the key advantage of, an exchange traded fund is it, it, it just allows, well, a few benefits. The first benefit provides exposure to an industry or an economy or um, a specific sector. Uh, it could be commodities like, like oil or gas, you name it. And in, in many instances, the, the, the big advantage of an ETF is it, it, it provides simple access, exchange traded access to maybe an asset that is, that is hard to trade or maybe it's to a basket of, of stocks that are in an industry um, that is, is maybe hard to get exposure to. 
and and it also provides you know a, a simple way to do it. And the fact that instead of going out and and acquiring fifty, sixty, a hundred companies in a particular industry, you can do that through through one trade. So the the, the net advantage is it, it's cost. It, it provides ease of access. It provides liquidity. It's cost effective. And it helps reduce volatility in the fact that your one holding can provide exposure to multiple companies. So if you think of the cannabis industry specifically, it's really hard to pick winners and losers. We know we see sales going 30, 40% per annum year after year after year and mm-hmm. in, in every jurisdiction that has, that has created legalization. And investors want to benefit from that. But how do you, you know, especially in this industry where it's such a fractured regulatory environment, how do you pick the winners? How do you know it's the right company? And there, a lot of the underlying stocks in the cannabis industry, like other emerging industries, uh, are, are, have, you know, don't have a lot of trading volume. So pretty, you know, wide bid ask spreads on them. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of trades you may have to do. So the ETF is like, here's a way this is, let's not figure out who's going to be the next Google or Amazon in any given industry. Let's just bet on the industry because we know the cannabis industry today is is a 20 to $25 billion industry global. We know that down the road it's going to be 10x that. Don't know when, yeah. don't know how, but I can just put my money here, one trade, let it let it sit, and off we go. So it's it, it's that simplicity and the, the, the effectiveness, you know, the the cost effectiveness of it that has been really appealing to both retail and institutional investors. What what to me about the, the fund and the portfolio is that you have different investment strategies in the cannabis marketplace, both long and short. And, and I don't want to go into that. I'm just telling the audience that there's a, a, an entire portfolio of investment strategies in cannabis. Let me, let me go on and talk to you, give you a little bit of a premise and then ask a question. When Joe Biden was elected president, there was a great, um, a great amount of uh, joy in the cannabis space because they believed that uh, what Chuck Schumer said that we will get uh, cannabis uh, reform this session of Congress. Uh, but as more and more Democrats are suggesting that we may not get cannabis reform even in the first term we're too close to the going to get too close to the midterm elections and so it appears that the momentum that as a result of the election and the enthusiasm for regulation deregulation has waned what's your take on that yeah i I, it's you're right i mean when we when we uh, saw the blue wave so to speak uh, last year there was a lot of a, a lot of you know happy campers in in the cannabis industry, not just in mm-hmm. the U.S. but globally. And and th- there was you know I, I I think the initial expectation was that there would be reform and it would be relatively soon. And I say relatively soon because nothing at the federal level, especially a contentious issue like this, happens that that fast. But um, you know is it's interesting. We have two I, you know kind of. There's there's the, there's a path to incremental reform, and then there's a path to comprehensive reform, and and the the it's going to be something in the middle, and I, I don't believe it's going to to happen this session. 
Um, you know, we've, we, we have the Safe Banking Act, which solves for a lot of the immediate issues in the U.S. cannabis industry with respect to commercial banking, to some extent investment banking. Um, but, you know, for the most part, it would provide safe harbors to, you know, federal banking institutions that want to provide banking services uh, to, to cannabis companies. That, that would be very helpful, but it doesn't go far enough. So you're not going to get the support, particularly from the, the, the Democrats, to say, hey, we should move forward with this. The concern is that even though it would help a lot of businesses in the industry, the problem is it doesn't go far enough and it's not going to address a lot of the, you know, called call the, the, the social equity piece that's been sorely missing. Um, on the flip side, we have the CAOA. And, and there was a lot of excitement with that, but, but the problem is that bill is so far-reaching and, it, and, and it's in such a draft form. I mean, it's really meant to just start the conversation in so many ways. It's out there for, and I believe the, 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 the comment period stops September 1st, but I think it, the, the, the main purpose of that was to, to kind of test the waters. So I, I believe what's going to happen is, is it's going to be something between the CAOA and the Safe Banking Act that's going to have a, a chance to actually get through at some point. Probably, I don't know exactly when, I doubt it's going to be this session, but in the not-too-distant future, we will see meaningful reform. It has to be more than just banking reform. It's a, at the end of the day, cannabis is a, is a drug, and it, you know, I believe the federal government will want to regulate it like they do alcohol, for example. Yeah. And so it's going to take a lot of comments to do that, to have not just just legalization or decriminalization, but also to have the appropriate regulatory, federal regulatory framework around it. And, and, and that's, that's, that's going to, that, you know, the, the good news is there's a ton of bipartisan support. It's just going to be weaving it down the middle that gets enough support when you, you know, right now you have, a, <laughs> it's 50, 50, um, Democrat and Republican. So, you know, we, we, we need to flip some, support from one side or the other, obviously, to make this happen. So it's, it's going to have to be a little bit more substantive than the incremental reform and probably less uh, comprehensive than what's in the uh, COA, uh, CAOA right now. Well, we've been talking to Jason Wilson, who is a non-practicing attorney, but advisor to the ETF-MG, which is a cannabis portfolio of uh, cannabis ETFs. Jason, how do people buy this product? Like almost any other stock that trades on the New York Stock Exchange, whether you work with a financial advisor or you, uh, or you, uh, you know, manage your own portfolio, it's um, for any financial intermediary, just cl- um, pull up the ticker MJ on the New York Stock Exchange and hit buy. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, uh, and can people follow you somewhere? Uh, just our commentary and whatnot is on, on our website at uh, etfmg.com and look under the fund MJ. And uh, yeah, you can absolutely follow our, our commentary and views on the cannabis industry and our funds right there. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Have a great day. You bet. We've been speaking with Jason Wilson on ETF for cannabis. We'll be right back. 
Hello, this is Dan Perkins, and I've got a question for you. If you knew what your customers wanted, would you be more successful? Of course you would, but how can you obtain this valuable information for your success? If you use the Engage portion of the Equio software from New Frontier Data, you won't need to guess what customers want to buy. Guessing can be very challenging and expensive, and more often than not, non-productive. If you want to find out what customers want, then go to NewFrontierData.com and click on the Equio button, and don't forget to ask about the special offer. This is Dan Perkins. You're listening to America's Cannabis Conversation on W420RadioNetwork.com. Welcome back to the conversation. And joining us today is Michael Kleinhens, who is a PhD and assistant professor at the Department of Clinical Sciences at Kansas State University. And he's going to talk to us about a study that he conducted that was published uh, about the use of cannabis in agriculture and animals. So welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on, Dan. Be able to discuss our uh, research. Please. So let's let's just get started. Tell our audience why you decided to do this. And, and was it something that you generated? Or was there somebody in the private sector who asked you to study it? And then let's talk about the study. So you go right ahead. So um, our research group got interested in um, industrial hemp as an agriculture feed um, and use in cattle, um, really from uh, the USDA um, freeing up uh, industrial hemp production for cannabinoids. Um, and then at the time, there was a lot of you know work being done, or um, you know a lot of lay press on the use of CBD and CBD oils for analgesia, uh, pain mitigation type things, um, seizure control. And we were originally interested in just the CBD um, as an analgesia. Um, Our lab's typical background is um, pain mitigation and food production animals. And so um, that kind of got us started um, looking at industrial hemp. At the same time, um, when we started looking into it, we got – uh, paired up with a gentleman in our horticulture department that was actually growing hemp. Um, and, you know, we worked with him, started working with him to see um, how we could use basically raw hemp in cattle as an analgesia. Uh, and then basically kind of started, that's where it started. But when we started looking into it more and more, there is nothing out there um, in terms of industrial hemp as a feed additive in cattle. Um, any of its nutrient value um, and whatnot, because he came to us and he's like, hey, we um, harvested our hemp seeds this year, and I have 50 pounds of this basically shaft left over from, you know, little finds of seeds, little finds of leaves, things like that. He's like, do you think that'd be something we could try to feed to cattle, um, or would you be interested in it? And so we took a sample of it and sent it off for nutrient analysis, and it came back really, really good. And so um, that kind of got got our ball thinking, you know, what else does this plant have in terms of a nutrient value? And so our first study, we just looked at that. We um, sent off seven different plant parts. Um, We collaborated with a private lab in Wisconsin where they did um, nutrient content and digestibility studies. Um, as well as we looked at the cannabinoid content of several different parts of the hemp plant itself and byproducts. So um, byproducts being the shaft from seed harvesting, um, residue left in the field, and then also whole flowers that have been through the extraction process for CBD. 
Um, and what we found there is you know, the, there's some very good potential for industrial hemp as a feed commodity or being utilized as a feed um, in cattle. Um, for the cattle business, uh, you know, the lower you can get your feed bill, the, the more profit you can make. So cattle being ruminants, they can use these fibrous type material, plant materials that are typically um, you know, not digestible by monogastrics like cats, dogs, pigs, humans, um, but they can utilize those for those nutrients and um, basically survive on them. And so that kind of was the first stage we did. Um, so, if, so really so interesting work. I, I'm, I'm fascinated. I grew up as a young child. I used to grow up on, and spend my summers on relatives' farms and dairy farms and beef cattle. Um, and so uh, the, the first question that comes to my mind, um, it's very, I've been told by people who process hemp for the extraction of CBD, that it's it's a very, probably not the right word but uh, that I'm going about to use, but a very unreliable from the standpoint of consistency of product. It, it can vary from plant to plant. So was, was all of the, in what you were using to try and develop a cattle feed, was all of the CBD extracted or were there some residual? Uh, so... Well, our first study was basically um, both extracted or in some of it was actually just raw plant. Um, when we actually went to feed it to the cow, we just fed raw plant from a single lot, essentially, of grown cannabinoid of industrial hemp. So when you do that, I mean, the one thing that uh, I'm sure that there are people out there listening to the show which is now over 900,000 that listen to the show on a monthly basis, that are saying, wait a minute, if the, is it going to get into the milk supply? Is, is, is there any chance of CBD getting into the milk supply? Um, the answer to that is yes. And so um, that is actually one of our big parts of our USDA-funded study that we um, were awarded uh, was to look at if animals consume industrial hemp and cannabinoids and or cannabinoids, does that enter the milk and does it enter the edible tissues? And so that's part of our next series of research we're going to be kicking off here um, late this year, early next year is uh, the first study will be if we give industrial hemp to calves for five days, where does it go in the body? So for that, we'll do what's called a tissue residue study We'll feed industrial hemp, and then we'll humanely euthanize them like they were at a slaughter plant um, for human consumption and sample those tissues, so muscles, um, edible, other edible tissues, and things like that. And then so we'll also you, do, I'm sorry, go ahead, do a milk study as well. And so we'll feed it to lactating dairy cows and see if we can detect it in the milk of those cows. So when you think about this as a feed, how does it compare as on a cost basis? Because you talked about earlier, you mentioned about the cost of feed is an important factor in determining, in essence, the profit that you can get out of a particular cow. Uh, mm -hmm. How does how does uh, hemp step up stand up as a 
replacement for corn or other grains? So hemp as a replacement for grains um, would be more cost prohibitive just because hemp seeds um, higher, you know, cost more to produce essentially. Um, Where we see the benefit for cattle would be more of a byproduct. So um, either hemp seeds that weren't able to be consumed by humans but still can be by animals for some reason, Um, hemp meal, so meal that is left over after the oil has been pressed out, um, a third, the other place is after, like the, after hemp flowers have been extracted, um, depending on the method, um, further CBD content. Those are those byproducts, so to speak, so you know, things that would normally go in the landfill because now for the hemp industry and the cannabinoid industry, they're no longer useful, um, but those are still have nutrient value to a, an animal, a ruminant animal like a cow and can be useful. So if those are could be procured at a, either free or very low cost, they could start to be used in place of certain levels of corn, soybean meal, um, hay, things like that. So that what you're, uh, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but what, what I think no. I hear you're saying is that it's um, a recycling program. You're going to be able exactly. to... We're going to be able to use the hemp for the CBD and whatever else we want it for humans. Then the residual left over, the stalks, the leaves, the pressed flowers, everything else, could possibly turn into a feed so that cattle lots might be close to hemp growing fields. Exactly. And so, you know, it prevents all these, you know, typically what happens now is, you know, you extract flowers, that flower material is basically thrown in the trash can. It goes to a landfill and it sits there. Um, you know, if we show that we can feed this to animals and feed it safely and give a time from when that animal last ate that cannabinoid or that hemp material to when they are, you know, processed to end up on somebody's dinner plate. Um, we can show that safety factor in there. Um, we can basically use that material as a feed, and it doesn't end up in the landfill. You know, it's used to feed cattle and things like that. So, so could other animals, uh, sheep and goats and chickens and pigs, um, use it? Pigs. So it would depend on the material. Um, I know there are some f- folks out there working on u- the using um, hemp cake. So it would be the leftover from oil extraction, uh, af- the seeds left over from oil extraction, um, or use, looking at using that in poultry and swine facilities, um, as well as some sheep facilities. Um, for sheep and goats, they could use the same, you know, they could eat pretty much any part of that plant and extract some sort of nutrient content out of it by the, because they have rumen just like cattle. Um, and so those so, rumen microbes can basically digest the hemp material for the animal and the animal's um, in a symbiotic relationship with those bacteria in their room and get nutrients from that. So, so um, as a feed source, looking at corn or wheat or soybeans as a, as a feedstock, does is is hemp better for the animal than the alternative grains, or about the same, or not quite as efficient? What, what, what's the what's the what's the deal there? Um, 
based on some of our work, it would depend on the part of the plant that you're discussing. Um, some of them aren't very digestible, so like the stalks, um, which are known for their fiber material, do not are not as digestible as say like the leaves or the seeds or the flowers. And so, um, depending on the part of the plant or how much of a whole plant you would feed to an animal, would kind of dictate how much would actually be usable for that animal. Um, that said, um, fibrous material um, is needed for ruminants to help maintain basically their GI balance, essentially. So mm -hmm. um, a lot of times cattle are fed, you know, fibrous material just to maintain a normal rumen flora um, and keep um, basically everything kind of steady within their stomachs. So so it has it has value to do that. Is it is it per pound uh, as nutritional as corn or wheat or soybeans for uh, animals? No, it's not. Um it's it would be more, more along the lines of um nutritional value in terms of alfalfa hay or like a, a forage type material. So in, instead of a grain material, it'd be more of a forage material. And it gets pretty similar um, in terms of crude proteins and things like that as certain parts of the plant as alfalfa, which is known in the, feed, the dairy and uh, beef cattle industry as a high-protein, um, high-fiber type um, feed additive or feed. Okay. Unfortunately, uh, Mike, we're, we're out of time, but it's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, helping me remember my childhood a little bit about cows. Uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Michael Kleinhens studying hemp. Doctor, how do people follow you and what you're doing? So um, we are we can be found um, on the Kansas State website, um, www.ksu.edu or k-state.edu. Um, the vet school has a website. Um, our papers are actually if you just Google my last name, MD. Kleinhens, K-L-E-I-N-H-E-N-Z, um, and put in bovine and hemp. Um, you, typically, it pops up within the first five or six hits on Google, too. So, Terrific. Well, thank you for joining us today. You're most welcome. If you didn't hear all this terrific interview, please go to W420RadioNetwork.com and go to the archives. So we'll be right back. You're listening to America's Cannabis Conversation on W420RadioNetwork.com. Hello, this is Dan Perkins. Here's more important information about the Engage section of the amazing software for new frontier data called Equio. These are just examples of some of the things that Engage can do for you. You will be able to see and understand consumption preferences at the county, state, and even the zip code level. You'll want to follow product trends filtered by age and gender so you know exactly what to offer and how to market it. How about learning the market density of the location you might be considering to expanding your business? Use the Visit Index score to determine the trends that impact your outreach and messaging. Engage with your customers customer base to expand and repeat your value. You can learn more about product trends filtered by age and gender. This valuable information helps you to know exactly what to offer and how to market it. Things are changing rapidly and you need the latest information from an independent source to keep yourself informed of the changing markets. For more information on the EQO software package, go to newfrontierdata.com, click on the EQO software, and don't forget to ask about the special offer. This is Dan Perkins. Time now for the lowdown on another high-time experience. 
Here's 420 Lifestyle Correspondent Rich Walkoff. Well, there's so many components in the cannabis industry, but one of the more mercurial would be mechanically pre-rolled joints. The world's leading pre-roll producer and the technology guru is Dean Arbit, the CEO of Bud.com and the CEO of Wagner Dimas. Am I pronouncing that correctly, sir? You are up. Thank you. <laughs> Beautiful. Pre-roll joints, I mean, you're taking the art out of it, but now it's technology or mechanism over the human artisan influence. So, yeah, we, we call it frictionless uptake, my friend. <laughs> so basically, when you're ready to, to, to smoke, we don't want anything standing in your way. Uh, in all seriousness, uh, frankly, it's, uh, it's, it's happened with every, as every industry matures. We're just helping sort of productize the industry. Okay, but it, you have hundreds of clients. You have millions upon millions of pre-rolls, which is now becoming an art form in and of itself. Uh, it is. So uh, right now, the, the, the tendency in the industry as it gets bigger is you're getting more specialization and uh, our company just has a better mousetrap and so we're well positioned to work with the other bigger brands on their pre-rolls. They understand that um, uh, essentially, you know, uh, we've got a more efficient uh, way to do it. Uh, we've got a lot more throughput that we can offer them, and so uh, we're partnering with a lot of the strong brands, letting them do what they do, and that's generate demand or grow really good weed. Leave it to us to uh, to roll it up. We're good at it. All right, how did this start? How the heck did you get into mechanical, you know, machine roll joints? Uh, I, I I I've smoked a lot of joints. But um, and I, hopefully you've rolled a lot of joints. Rolled quite a few, not as many as my partner uh, um, Mitchell Wagner. So Mitchell is the uh, the engineer and the brain behind um, behind our platform. Uh, he started building this by breaking every tobacco uh, machine that existed. Um, it took him about three and a half years to come up with what's essentially a strikingly different. Uh, mechanism than you'll see um, right now anywhere else in cannabis or in the tobacco sort of rolling spaces. So uh, he came up with it, uh, took him about three and a half years, uh, invested every penny he had. We met, um, he was almost there, I invested the last money uh, and then got in some more investment, uh, got in about a million bucks. We built the machine and that first year we made ten million dollars. Crazy, I mean thousand percent in your first year so i guess when you roll a cigarette tobacco doesn't have the same stickiness or challenges that it is when you roll cannabis joints absolutely which is why you don't see uh rob you don't see the uh, those same formats in cannabis right you don't see the cigarette style joints there's some folks years ago that tried and they failed miserably. We don't think that um, that the cannabis consumer wants any part of that format. It's associated with, with cigarettes, very different ethos. Um, also just the format as far as having uh, an acetate filter, it just goes against, uh, I think, what cannabis smokers like. Um, and I think it goes uh, very counter to um, smoking a good tasting product if that filter is essentially blocking the taste it defeats a purpose for most folks okay how is your filter different so 
we've made a, a format that works without filters or with filters. Our format makes everything between a 0.25 uh, gram joint, which uh, is referred to as a dog walker, all the way up to a three and a half gram joint that we've uh, mechanized now uh, and making uh, uh, in large volumes for Tommy Chong. So uh, we had to look at the constraints of this industry. It's very different. You need a lot more than one format, and we just built something very different that works. Yeah, so it's not so much the filter. It's, it's the product and the processing. So what is unique to your pre-rolls that make it so exceptional? How many hundreds of different... Uh, growers and cultivators, distributors are using yours? So we, uh, we've we made uh, over 500 SKUs. Um, right now we've got probably 60 uh, co-packing partners, uh, you know, really big brands that everyone's heard of, uh, celebrity brands included. And right now I think we uh, are producing six out of the top 11 uh, best-selling joints in the state. Right you now. can name drop, it's okay. Well, we, we, I'd rather not because at this point we have, uh, we do have relationships that we, uh, that we do, uh, care about and some of our, uh, some of our partners would rather the information, uh, not be out there, but I'll, I'll give you a few just cause you're a San Francisco guy and I like you. <laughs> uh, so we, we roll the joints for, uh, Cypress Hill and for, uh, Tommy Chong. Uh, we roll the joints for, uh. Uh, Mind Your Head, which is Mickey Hart's brand that he just dropped from the Drake Grateful Dead, uh, and then uh, a ton of really great uh, endemic brands, essentially cultivators that grow really fire weed that we help productize our products. So I guess reading the subtext, people don't want to know that their their brand is being rolled by some other company. They want to keep it kind of proprietary or... Privately so, is, is that the essence of it? I think it just doesn't, it, there's not a huge benefit to us uh, because we have no no issues right now finding clients. We've got a, a list of folks waiting. And so for us, we'd rather uh, sort of give the glory to our brand partners. They're out there uh, putting their best foot forward, doing a ton to support those brands. Uh, we're just sort of trusted production partners and we'd like to stay in the background. Okay, that's cool. So what about the processing of the weed to make the joint roll and smoke as well as it does you don't want the popping you don't want any uh any obstacles in your smoking experience another great question looks like you've had a couple obstacles in your smoking experience and you're very just once or twice there you go just (laughs) once or twice so uh again it's a great question and we look at this uh very differently than just having built a machine that rolls joints um we have built a platform that starts at the grind. Um, The grind is where uh, you lose all the terpenes and moisture the minute that it basically, uh, the flower goes in. Um, Basically all the nose goes up in the air if you don't account for for preserving those terpenes and that taste. So what we did was uh, we worked with, um, with great genetics providers and analytical labs three years ago and we tested uh, every part of um, essentially we tested every type of uh, grinding mechanism that was prevalent at the time Um, we found that one of those worked a lot better to mitigate terpene loss we then adjusted that to further 
uh, sort of modify it for our purpose. Uh, we've done that at every stage of the step uh, because the biggest enemy of a pre-roll is lack of taste and flavor. That's got nothing to do with just making the joint. It has everything to do with grinding it, making it efficiently, and then overwrapping it that same day, which is something that we stand by. Um, our system, another very unique part of our system, um, is the fact that we we have a very different technology. It's not a vibratory table uh, like these knock boxes or the other vibratory systems. Um, our system actually um, accounts. We have a different method um, of, uh, of of getting the weed in the joint. Essentially, a different method of compressing, and so. Um, we're able to actually fill down by the crutch where generally it's hard for those joints that are made by knock boxes. Uh, it's hard for that weed just on gravity alone to sort of matriculate all the way down by the crutch so that you have a nice, even, firm joint. You don't get that either boating or you don't get the kind of that uh, the gap uh, right at the crutch. Um, so our tech accounts for that. Okay, for the, the non-aficionado, you're, you're throwing out some vernacular that may not be uh, known by everybody. Knock boxes and the crutch. Okay, so the crutch is the lower part uh, instead of the filter. There is no filter on, on joints. Uh, it's generally a crutch that you see at the end, which is the little cardboard part um, that you suck on to get the weed out, right? Um, knock boxes, great question. Um, Knock boxes are the most prevalent sort of off-the-shelf tool that were really made for low-volume pre-roll uh, manufacturing. Uh, it's made by Futurola. You make about 100 joints at a time. Uh, now, you're talking, you're, you're making joints in the millions. How many joints are you producing with your machines, and where is this done? Uh, so our factory for uh, cannabis processing is in Oakland, uh, and we run uh, two to 250,000 joints a day out of Oakland. Um, we also have a, uh, a hemp facility that, um, that we moved into uh, just last month, and that's part of a partnership uh, with a big hemp ag group. So we're rolling, we've adopted our technology from cannabis to hemp, so we're rolling hemp pre-rolls or hemp cigarettes uh, at a facility out of Moss Landing right by Santa Cruz, California. Now, I heard about the hemp joint ventures. That's a fascinating uh, new endeavor because if you're trying to take cigarette smokers away from tobacco, this is a potentially wonderful alternative. It is. Um, and we think there are a lot of folks that... Uh, don't want to be inebriated, um, especially at different times during the day. Um, so they're essentially social smokers um, that have been asking for a product that tastes good, uh, that they can try instead of cigarettes. And then there's also a faction of tobacco smokers um, looking to nicotine-free smokes for cessation. Um, we see uptake very quickly. Uh, we've launched a product called Level Hemp. Um, where we use uh, uh, we use all hemp paper. We've also crafted a filter made from hemp pulp as opposed to acetate used in cigarettes. Uh, we've also uh, that filter has its own pressure draw, which essentially means it allows for more airflow, so you can taste the really good tasting weed that has no THC in it. Um, so it's a really unique experience. The product is cool. It's all natural. 
all biodegradable, um, and we think it provides uh, a pretty cool option for folks trying to get off cigarettes and those that just want a good tasting smoke that don't want to get high. That is that is amazing. I mean, th- remember the the rage a few years ago about spirit cigarettes, the all natural cigarette, which was tobacco that was not processed the same way. It didn't have any uh, you know, chemical additives and the like. But it still was nicotine, and it still was the danger of smoking tobacco. Is there any research to indicate that the smoking of hemp is uh, more favorable? One would think it would be, but have you uh, looked into that much? So there's no research right now that shows uh, that smoking um, CBD uh, or anything else is uh, can be said to be you know beneficial to one's health. I'll say that. But how about detriment? And we and we would not and we would also not uh, ever market the product that way. However, um, I can tell you that uh, there is no right now. There, there's no data out there saying that CBD um, or frankly even THC is addictive. Whereas everybody understands uh, that that's that's the biggest problem with uh, it's, it's not tobacco. It's it's nicotine, and so it's nicotine is is what's being delivered there. Um, so. Um, getting off nicotine is, is the goal, and uh, CBD is, uh, at this point, is uh, absolutely not known to be uh, an addictive substance. Yeah, so it's a win-win. Well, five million pre-roll joints from your company. You're the world's leading machine-rolled joint company in the world. Uh, that's just phenomenal. And has, has the growth been exponential? I mean, you're still escalating? Uh, we are. Uh, lots of work to be done. Um, we chose, uh, like I just mentioned, we really chose to pivot uh, with the opportunity in hemp instead of uh, going full bore and uh, growing uh, in other states. And cannabis, as you know, um, regulations make it real tough. you got to go out there and essentially set up shop in every state. And uh, even though we had deals uh, to do, uh, to, to essentially go into every state, um, we chose to um, point our resources to hemp because we think it's a much bigger, uh, more addressable market. And uh, we like the idea of doing it from one factory in Moss Landing and being able to export all over the world. Cool. People want to contact you or learn more about your company? DeanAtBud.com. Easy. Easy peasy. Yeah, man. Dean Arbit, the CEO of Wagner Dumas and Bud.com, thanks so much for joining us. Rich Walcoff for the W420 Radio Network. Hello, this is Dan Perkins with more information on the new Frontier Data software called Equio. Let me ask you this question. Would the success of your business be impacted if you knew the frequency of visits customers spent in competitor stores? Of course it would. The question is, where do you go to get this information? This is just one of the many pieces of information that you can get through the Equio software available at newfrontierdata.com. Remember to click on the Equio button and don't forget to ask for the special offer. I'm Dan Perkins. Welcome back to the conversation and joining us for a second interview is Nick Richards, an attorney. He was a former IRS trial attorney, now works at the firm of Greenspoon and Marker in Denver. And we're going to talk about a scary piece of taxation. So welcome to the conversation, Mr. Richards. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be back. In our last show, we talked about 280E, but when you and I talked before we did the show, you told me about 8300. And I, I said to you, I have no idea anything about 8300. 
So let's start mm-hmm. off with our audience, especially those people who are thinking about getting into the business. What is, is it rule or law or section 8300, whatever it is? It's a form. It's a form 8300, and it comes out of the Bank Secrecy Act, which is the anti-money laundering statute. Uh, it's a federal statute. And Dan, it's kind of similar to, you know, most people understand that if they take more than $10,000 of cash and try to put it into their bank account, that their bank is going to file a form and the bank is going to tell the Bank Secrecy uh, Department of Treasury about that deposit. The, The form that a bank files is called a currency transaction report. Or if you're, you know, looking suspicious, they file a suspicious activity report. Uh, similarly, for individuals and businesses, if they receive more than $10,000 cash, and there's, a, there's some qualifications that has to be in the ordinary course of a business, um, if they receive more than that $10,000 cash, they have to file a Form 8300 with the, the uh, uh, Department of Treasury under the Bank Secrecy Act and report that cash transaction. Uh, and failure to do so is subject to very large penalties and even criminal time uh, if, it, if it's willful and, and, and seriously abusive. So you told me in our conversation, we, you, you used the example of a pickup person operating mm-hmm. for a dispensary that was going somewhere to pick up inventory and wanted to buy some stuff for himself. Tell us that story. Right. Well, so that's very common in the cannabis industry. You got to get the marijuana to the dispensary somehow. And uh, on our last show, we talked about vertically integrated businesses. In a vertically integrated business, there wouldn't be a cash transaction generally because you're growing it and selling it yourself. But if you're a standalone dispensary or a standalone cultivator, you're selling to the other one. And so in the context of making those sales, generally they have a delivery uh, pickup type person that's generally a, a badged state licensed for the marijuana industry badged employee most often there are you know i would put them at about 23 24 maybe maybe 28 years old um and you know living the dream right uh working in the marijuana industry maybe high as a kite uh and you know they show up let's put ourselves in the in the in the position of the dispensary uh our guy shows up and has fifteen thousand dollars cash and is looking for the good stuff right and uh, goes goes in to, to make the purchase to you know bring it back to the to the dispensary, and they had there they run into this form 8300 if in fact the cultivator is got you know is doing it right, uh, and that form 8300 requires um, several things. The first thing it requires is that 23 year old individual to reveal uh, who they're working for and what the employer identification number is for that company, and then the second thing is that that individual has to give their name, their driver's license number, and their social security number as well. Now, remember, this is being reported to the federal government under the Bank Secrecy Act. And when that happens and that individual is buying that marijuana, a lot of times that individual doesn't want to give that, give that information. And they will refuse to do it. And oftentimes the person selling the marijuana needs to sell it anyway and will go ahead and make the sale anyway. And hmm. that is a big problem in the industry all across the United States because you know nobody wants to give up their personal information when they're buying $15,000 worth of marijuana in a, in, a, in a federally illegal industry. 
Um, and as I said earlier, the penalties are severe. Uh, it can be up to, you can serve criminal time. Uh, you can have a very small penalty for a small violation, but you could have a penalty that, that was equal to the value of the transaction. So in the example that I just gave you, in that example, if that cultivator doesn't file that Form 8300 and the, and the IRS who does the audits uh, comes in and finds out about it, determines it's willful, that's a $15,000 penalty. So under your illustration, uh, the person who walks into the, 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 the grower or whoever, uh, when they want to buy that $15,000, uh, the, the seller has to record the $15,000. So if they don't fill out the 8300 an audit will show you brought in $15,000. Where was it from? And why don't you have a uh, 8300 they could be in trouble. And you said before, cannabis companies get audited a lot. That's right. And those audits more and more include Form 8300 audits. And it's, it's a real, you know, it's an all-cash industry for the most part. And so the federal government is really worried about money laundering in the industry. They're really worried about organized crime. And the Form 8300 audits are how they go after that. And they can be triggered by an in income tax audit or they can come hand in hand with an income tax audit. I've seen it happen both ways. Or the, uh, when you file these forms, there's a computer program that can mine those filings and you can just get an audit just for Form 8300 alone, which happens as well. Mm. You know, uh, uh, I was just thinking about what you were saying there. Um, what, we're, what we're seeing now is that the margins at the dispensary level have um, shrunk. And uh, as yeah. you pointed out earlier, uh, sometimes a dispensary is is not well thought out and they've got a three-year business plan and they're out of business in three years because they didn't have the right structure and everything else. So that there is a pressure to generate cash. Is the fact that the, the market has contracted in the terms of price, which means the margins are less for the businesses, is that creating a temptation to not fill out 8300s and just take the cash? People are desperate. You know, they, they, it takes a lot of money to start a cannabis business. And now that it isn't as easy as to make so much money, people are looking to cut corners. And, yeah, that, that, can, that can lead to that. You know, Dan, we said in, in the 280E segment that I said that 280E was a big problem for retailers, you know, dispensaries, but not cultivators or manufacturers. Uh, sex, or Form 8300 is the exact opposite. Big problem for cultivators and manufacturers, not such a big problem for dispensaries because dispensaries are the ones paying the cash and the, and the producer is the one filing the form. We're speaking with Nick Richards, a former IRS trial attorney who works at the firm of Greenspoon and Marker in Denver. Is there any other particular tax form like 280E or the, or the 8300 that people need to be aware of that they should be thinking about because when they're starting their business, they're not, they're more excited about starting the business, but they're not necessarily excited about compliance. So is there something else that they need to be aware of? You know, the crazy thing, Dan, is that, as I said, you know, everybody gets audited in the cannabis industry and that's not just the IRS that, you know, in on the game, it's also the state and city. They want to audit the cannabis industry as well. Everybody wants their pound of flesh and, 280E and Form 8300 are kind of sexy because they're they're unusual and you know most businesses don't have to deal with those 
but every little tax that's out there, the cannabis industry has to pay. And one of the biggest ones is, is use tax. And use tax, you may, may recall the whole Amazon.com stuff about, hey, nobody's paying sales tax to Amazon. It isn't fair. Well, if, if a business or an individual buys something and they should have paid sales tax and they don't, they are then required to file a use tax return and pay a use tax. It's the same amount, uh, and it's just triggered when you should have paid sales tax, but you didn't. And the cannabis industry is getting hammered on those use tax requirements because it moves so fast that, the, that, that they, get, they get, you know, b behind the curve and chasing fires, and they forget that they've bought a bunch of stuff and not paid tax, and now they're going to have to pay use tax when they get audited by the state or the city that they're in. And um, one of the biggest areas that that comes up with is in the sale of other businesses or the build-outs of, of a business. When a, in, the, in the case of a build-out, when a contractor goes out and buys materials, that contractor is buying those materials and probably not paying tax on them. If that contractor then builds you a facility and you are then the end user of that facility, that contractor has just shifted that tax burden to you. And now when hmm. you get audited, they're going to come in and they're going to see that build out and they're going to see that invoice. And if that invoice says time and materials on it, you're going to have to pay sales tax on the materials unless you can prove that the contractor did it. So, Nick, I, I guess what I, I, I got to ask you this question. If, if a person walks into a dispensary today and purchases a, a I suppose they could, but I don't know if they can. But if they could purchase over $10,000 of marijuana product, does the mm -hmm. dispensary have to fill out an 8300 on that individual sale? They would. Yeah, they would. If it was more than $10,000 cash, they would have to fill that, out, fill that out form out, yeah. Most, most um, states have, you know, a one-ounce maximum. Um, and so that would not get you to the – you know, that $10,000 number. One of the interesting things about that form, though, is that it applies to single transactions and related transactions. And so the, the more likely scenario is where you have a dispensary buying from a cultivator and they buy $2,000, then $6,000, then $5,000, you know, in a in several days period or, or in week after week, right? The IRS is mm -hmm. going to look at that and they're going to say, ah, that's a related transaction, singly negotiated transaction, and that's Form 8300 when that series of transactions exceed $10,000. What do you think the prospects are of, of changing regulation in cannabis in Congress happening? There has been a bill pending every year for 10 years, I want to say. And you all, somebody new to the industry always says, Nick, I heard there was this bill pending in Congress. It's going to fix everything. And I say, yeah, and yeah I know. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. Hello, this is Dan Perkins for America's Cannabis Conversation. And I want to tell you about a new sponsor, New Frontier Data, and their Equio amazing software to help you discover, engage, and compete in the cannabis marketplace. For the first time, you have the ability to discover on your computer desktop 
valuable information on state, city, and even zip codes to assess your opportunities for cannabis investment in that market. Through the Engage portion, you will be able to figure out what products in a marketplace consumers would be interested in buying. And finally, with Compete, you'll be able to look at prospect profiles and find new and innovative opportunities to test new products to attract new customers. Significant change is coming in the cannabis industry, and you need to get ready now and be prepared for this fantastic opportunity ahead of you. For more information on the EQO software for your business, go to newfrontierdata.com and look for the EQO section and expand your horizons. I'm Dan Perkins. W420radionetwork.com.